Believe it or not, we have reached the end of our uh, Foundations series, which is, uh, we've been spending several months now looking back into the first early chapters of the Bible um, and, and finding these key ideas and principles upon which our faith really rests. And, and today will be the last message in that series, and for the first time, uh, we're going to be leaving the book of Genesis and actually going into the book of Exodus, and in fact, we're going to take a pretty big leap because we're going to go all the way to Exodus chapter 33. We were in Genesis 50 a couple weeks ago, which is the last chapter in Genesis. We're going to Exodus 33, so you can go ahead and turn there if you like, and, and I'll tell you which verse eventually, but um, while you're turning there, let me spend like three or four minutes getting you up to speed on what happens in the world between Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus chapter 33, because uh, we, we left the Israelites two weeks ago in Egypt. And the Israelites at that point were only really a big extended family of about 70 people, and they were living safely in Egypt under the protection of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, thanks to the influence of a guy named Joseph, uh, whom we learned about a couple weeks ago. But in the generations that followed that, a new king, and really I think a new dynasty of pharaohs in Egypt arose, and this king did not know Joseph, and the Israelites were eventually made into slaves. The Israelites then cried out to God, and God heard their cries, and he sent a man named Moses to deliver them from Egypt, probably something that a lot of you are familiar with. Um, but through a series of incredible miracles, from plagues to the Passover to the parting of the Red Sea, uh, God did amazingly and, and miraculously deliver the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, and he brought them now numbering, by the way, in the hundreds of thousands of people by the time this happens, he brought them to the desert, the Sinai Desert, where he gave them the law. He gave them what we know today as the Ten Commandments along with the supporting rules and regulations. And that law was meant to transform the people of Israel from just being a large people group to being a mighty nation a nation that would be ruled by God and would in fact really have its own written constitution, the law. However, you might also know this, that while Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he was receiving the tablets containing the Ten Commandments inscribed there by the very finger of God, that the people of Israel at the base of the mountain had fallen into sin and they began worshiping a golden calf. And Moses, as coming down from the mountain in his fury, he sees the scene and he, he, he throws the stone tablets of the law down on the ground and they shatter. And then after taking some steps to deal with the people's rebellion and unfaithfulness to God, Moses goes back into God's presence and he needs to beg God to not give up on his people. He knows this is a critical moment. The people have horribly offended God. Moses goes back into the presence of God and he doesn't know what's going to happen. Exodus 33, the chapter I just had you turn to, in this place, Moses is interceding with God for the Israelites, for the sake of the people. And God says this to Moses. I'm going to kind of paraphrase leading up to our verses. He says, Moses, look, I took you out of Egypt to send you into the promised land. Go ahead and go. You guys, go to the promised land. Go to the land of Canaan. Take over Canaan. But God says to Moses, but I'm not going with you. Because I'll send an angel to drive out the nations before you, but I'm not going personally because if I do, I will probably end up destroying you because of your sin. So I'm not going. Moses doesn't give up. He starts to reason with God. 
and he appeals to God's promises and to his, God's relationship with Israel and to his reputation with the other nations. And Moses says basically, Lord, if, if you don't go with us, then don't send us at all. We don't want to go. We need your presence with us, God, because that's what defines us as your people. Without your presence, we're nothing. And amazingly, God listens to Moses and he relents and he agrees to accompany the Israelites to the promised land. And then Moses makes one more request of God. And we'll see what that is. Let's pick up the story starting in verse 15 of chapter 33. 33, 15. Moses is talking here. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, don't, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. What an audacious request, right? I mean, how, how dare Moses ask God for something like that? And yet God seems to be pleased with the request to the point that he doesn't really hesitate to respond to it. Show me your glory. I, I don't Have anybody ever asked God that? Have you ever asked God to show you his glory? I don't know if you know what that means. Maybe not in the same way that Moses was about to experience it because Moses, we're going to see, is going to have really kind of a unique experience here. But, but have you ever asked God to show you his glory in your life? Because it's still a good thing to ask. I mean, we ask God for blessings. We ask God for guidance. We ask God for, for stuff all the time. And God was saying to Moses, I'll give you the blessings. I'll give you the stuff. I'll give you the deliverance. I'll give you the promised land. I'm just not giving you myself. Moses said, no, I don't want all that stuff. I want you, God. We don't want all that stuff. We need God himself. Wow, have you prayed that? You ever thought that way when you're, when you're praying? Is, is, it, is it God's blessings that you're really after? Is it the stuff? Is it the deliverance? Is it the comfort? Is it the help? Is it the provision? Or have you come to a place everywhere you're like, God, I, I need your presence in my life. I need to walk with you. I need fellowship with you. I need you, God, not just all your stuff. That's what Moses is saying here, really. It's a good thing to ask. But you know what? If you're going to ask God to bring his glory into your life, if you're going to ask him, in a sense, to show you his glory, you better know what you're asking for because it's it's pretty big deal. And that's really going to be the topic for today. What does it mean, not just for Moses, but for us, to experience God's glory? At least what can we learn about it from this passage? Because I doubt that we'll get to the bottom of everything today. But as we look at the rest of Moses' experience with God here, I really want to break it up into three parts for us. First of all, what is Moses really asking for? We'll look at that. And then, how does God respond to Moses' request? And then lastly, we're going to have to, to take a, a, little, a few minutes and try to make sense of God's response, because God is going to say some things that maybe are a bit confusing in his response, and we're going to have to come to terms with it. So first of all, what is Moses really asking for? Second, how does God respond to it? And then lastly, uh, what can we make sense of in God's response, because it's going to open up kind of a little puzzle for us. So when Moses says to God, show me your glory, what is he really asking for? Well, first of all, Moses is not primarily asking here for some sort of ecstatic emotional experience. 
Now, I think he gets that. He seems to get that, but from the context, both before and after, and we'll read this, it seems like what Moses is mainly concerned about here is God's promise that he just made to go with his people. And, and just as God had appeared on the top of Mount Sinai when he gave the law of the Ten Commandments in glorious fashion with thunder and, and, and lightning and trumpet blasts and all that kind of stuff, he, he's, he, he, Mo, Moses wants God, now that he's made this promise, to confirm this promise by showing up in his glory and showing Moses his glory. So that's really what Moses is after. But there's no getting around it. It's still a daring request. In fact, it's a really dangerous request. And God's going to make that very clear to Moses in the next few verses. So let's start, pick it up in verse 19 where we left off and see what God says to that. Moses says, please show me your glory, verse 18. Then in verse 19, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God's basically, he's going to take Moses back up to Mount Sinai, and he says, Moses, if you experience my direct presence and you see my face, you're going to be obliterated. So we're going to have to take some precautions here. God knows that as his glory passes by, Moses is basically going to need to take shelter. So God is going to put him behind some rocks so that Moses can only peer through a small crack in the rocks, and then as God passes by, he's going to cover that small crack with his hand, and then after he passes by most of the way, he's going to open it up just a little bit so Moses can just get a glimpse of God's back, because to see his face would be deadly. This reminds me a little bit of, um, if you ever look at a total eclipse, you know, you have to, you know, never, never have to, but if we ever have a total eclipse and you want to see it, you're not supposed to look at the sun directly, right, because it'll damage your eyes. And so there are all these precautions you could take from getting a, a fancy filter to look at the eclipse, or you can poke a little hole in a cardboard box and get a projection on a piece of paper so that you're seeing a projection of, but you're not supposed to look directly at the sun or you'll damage your eyes, right? Well, God is a lot brighter than the sun. So what, what I'm really trying to get at here is that God's glory whatever else it is, is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It's beyond anything we can imagine. Let let me take you on a short side trip just to talk for a couple minutes about the meaning of this word glory. If, If you look at the Hebrew word in verse 18, the word kabod, glory, you will see that the word itself is actually kind of overwhelming because it, it gets translated dozens of different ways in the Old Testament. It doesn't always refer to God, but when it does, it refers sometimes to God's splendor and magnificence and brightness. Sometimes it refers to God's being worthy of honor and respect. Sometimes it refers to um, things like richness and abundance, you know, the value of God. But at the root of this Hebrew, uh, of this word, is a Hebrew root word that means weight. Weight. Not W-A-I-T, but W-E-I-G-H-T. Weight as in heaviness. That's the idea behind this word glory. And to say God is glorious is to say in some way that he is weighty, that he is substantial, that he's important, that he he matters more than anything else in the universe. 
Nothing can ever outweigh God when it comes to His value, His splendor, His honor, His power, or His presence. I think Paul gets at this idea some in in 2 Corinthians when he says, he's talking about the troubles we go through in life. And he says the light and momentary troubles that we go through, we don't think of them as light and momentary, but he says the light and momentary troubles that we go through are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that they are working for us. That'll make these troubles seem like nothing in comparison. And so the opposite of God's glory, sometimes we can learn about a word by thinking about its opposite. The opposite of God's glory is not necessarily darkness or ugliness. The opposite of God's glory is emptiness or lightness or even nothingness. God's glory means there is absolutely no way that God could ever be taken lightly because God immediately outweighs or outshines anything that we try to put beside Him. That's God's glory. He overwhelms us with His realness, with His importance, with just the gravity of His being. We see something of this in Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah, some of you are familiar, it's a very familiar passage in Isaiah. It's actually the call of Isaiah, the prophet. But Isaiah has a vision of God in the temple. Only God isn't really in the temple because God can't fit in the temple. In fact, it says just the train of his robe fills the whole temple. God's presence cannot be contained by the temple. In fact, the temple in Isaiah's vision is actually breaking apart. The foundations of the thresholds are shaking at the sound of God's praise. And it's a chaotic and alarming and scary and overwhelming scene. And Isaiah realizes very quickly that, that his religious life to that point Whatever ideas he's had in his brain that he's figured out or heard about God and his glory and God and his vastness or God and and his character, whatever he's learned is is not going to be enough because God is way too big. He is way too glorious. He is way too heavy for that. God is going to break out of whatever box Isaiah had put him in and Isaiah is immediately undone and he fears for his life because he sees God in his glory. So here's a question. This is a question for us. If that's what God is really like in His glory, then do you really expect Him to fit into that little corner of your life that you have prepared for Him and invited Him into and told God, you stay there, that's your room? (laughs) I don't think that's going to work. It's not going to work. You know, we invite Jesus into our hearts, okay, so now we th- if you think of your life as a house with different rooms, you know, so we have, our, we have our work room, we have our relationship room, we might have a recreation room and a few other rooms in our house, right? And then we have a God room where we keep our spiritual life. And we go there to worship and to pray and maybe to read the Bible and, and become a better person. You know what? It doesn't work that way. You can't keep God in one little room or even one big room. Your whole life isn't big enough to contain Him. This means when you ask for God to fill you with His Holy Spirit, because we do that as Christians, right? We know the Spirit's come to live in us, and we ask God to fill us with His Holy Spirit. You know what you're doing when you do that? You're actually playing with fire. You really are, because the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled the way that you would control, say, you know, the flame on your gas range, where you can turn it up or down you know, to, to suit your preferences, put it at a certain level. Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we can quench the Spirit. We can actually stifle the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But 
The Spirit's power and presence cannot be regulated. So if you, if you, if you really want the Spirit to come in, you're not going to be able to control him with a little dial. He's going to take over. He's going to take over. And when you say, God, show me your glory, you're not just asking for a vision of something beautiful or sublime or some super happy emotional experience. No, you are saying, God, I want you to come in and show me how you outweigh everything in my life. Get on the other end of the seesaw across from all the other things that I've been worshiping and serving in your place and launch them into outer space. You see, in the long run, the glory of God is too heavy for you to handle. You can't hold it. It has to hold you. And so if the presence of God really becomes active in your life through His Holy Spirit, just like that temple in Isaiah 6, your foundations will begin to shake. Your priorities will change. Your desires will change. Your your emotions will change. Your dreams will change. Your, your, Your conversation will change. Your plans will change. God will bring events into your life that you do not understand and cannot come to terms with. God will bring people into your life that will challenge you and expand your ideas about things like love and fellowship. You will be forced way out of your comfort zone. All this to say, if you really experience God's glory, you will be forced off the throne of your life because there's no room there. Notice once Moses asks to see God's glory, God takes over. He actually, he actually places Moses in the cleft of the rock and he controls the whole experience. And Moses is overwhelmed. In fact, the glow that remains on Moses' face after this experience makes the rest of the people of Israel afraid to approach him when he comes down from the mountain. Now, I realize that a lot of what I just shared with you over the last five minutes is more of a digression on this word glory, but I want you to know something of what that means, something of what it means when you ask to encounter God's glory in your life, because it's more than just asking God for a really cool fireworks show. So now let's look at how God responds to Moses' request. Okay, we'll read, start in verse, uh, let's go to chapter 34 and just read the first nine verses. Here's what actually happens. Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me at the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord, verse 5, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Well, what happens here? God, 
Moses does come up Mount Sinai. God does put him in the cleft of that rock, and he does pass by Moses in the inapproachable brightness of his glory, which has to have been an unforgettable experience, of course, for Moses. However, I want you to notice something. This is a multimedia experience. Okay, this is, this is sight and sound, we would say, right? Moses gets more than a vision. He gets a vision, but he also hears a voice. And the first thing the voice says is God's name. His covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord. In fact, the name is spoken twice for emphasis. God here is confirming his identity to Moses. He's saying, Moses, this is who I am. And it is critical for us to know today that God has a name. God has a name. His name stands for all that he is. God has an identity. God has a personality. God has attributes. He has qualities. His character has content. He is a particular being distinct from all other beings and distinct from all other so-called gods. God is a person, not a nameless, impersonal force or entity. And this is very important for us to remember when we worship God, as we did this morning, because we have to keep in mind who exactly it is that we're worshiping. See, sometimes it's tempting to worship, to take our worship time and to see it primarily as an experience. You know, the worship experience. A lot of churches will say, come and have a great worship experience. And there's nothing wrong with having an experience. I hope you have an experience when you come to worship. But that experience, for some people, is is largely a kind of emotional release that comes from the music and the atmosphere and the general feeling of something deeply spiritual going on here. And if that happens successfully, and if we get to that place emotionally, we walk away from that service and we say, I had a great worship experience this morning. And I needed that because i got to get through a tough week and i got to come back next Sunday and kind of get my fix again and have another good worship experience so I can get through the next tough week. Now don't misunderstand. Experience is not a bad word. And emotion is definitely a part of worship. Don't hear me saying that it's not. In fact, emotion is a necessary part of worship if we're going to worship God with our whole heart. But our heart should be responding to God himself, not just to the atmosphere. In worship, our minds should be meditating on and our hearts should be responding to God, who he is, what he's like, what he's done. This is why Moses doesn't just see something on the mountain. He also hears something. God is declaring part of his character to Moses. Now, I said part of his character, right? What part of his character is God declaring to Moses on the mountain when he appears before him in his glory? Let me ask you a question. What was the first prayer you ever learned as a little child if if your parents maybe taught you to pray? The first prayer you ever maybe kind of memorized. Usually when I talk to people, there are two different prayers that that people will say. One is, um, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, blah, 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 et cetera, right? Um, the other one is the, is the shorter, easier one that I learned, and it went before dinner time, right? And it was, God is great, God is good, and we thank Him for our food, right? I, did, I, I always, it bothered me it didn't quite rhyme. But you know what? <laughs> is there not a lot of theology in that little prayer, actually? There, there is. You see, theologians, when they talk about the character of God, they will take His attributes and they will classify God's attributes. Some are attributes of greatness and some are attributes of goodness 
God's greatness includes all those infinite qualities we talk about, the omni-this and omni-that. You know, God is, God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is everywhere present. He is eternal. He has no beginning or end. And, and God, if God wanted to share his greatness with Moses, I suppose he could have taken Moses, tran- you know, taken, transported him to the edge of the galaxy and showed him who knows what, right? Black holes and dwarf stars and nebulas and explosions and all sorts of crazy things to show Moses what kind of creation he had made and how powerful and how wise he was and how great he was, but that's not what God does here. In fact, if you look carefully at verse 19, God tells Moses that what will pass in front of him is actually what? He said, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. What is God's goodness? God's goodness is his love, his justness, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, his kindness, his patience. And if you think about it, theoretically speaking, God could have been great without being good. It is logically possible to have a God who is great but not good. All the power but none of the patience. All of the the fearful majesty but none of the tender compassion. That's not who God is. Even as Moses is being blown away by this intimidating brightness, this fearful brightness of God's holiness, and even, don't forget this, Moses' people are standing helpless, broken, and guilty at the foot of that mountain, just having committed a grievous sin and wondering what's going to happen to them. At this very moment, God chooses to reveal himself, how? By his goodness. Look at verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, what about the Lord? Merciful, compassionate, knowing our weakness and not treating us as our sins deserve. Gracious, generous to give us all the good things that we don't deserve. Slow to anger. Isn't that good news for us? That God is patient with us? But then, even better, abounding in steadfast love abounding and there's another hebrew word by the way chesed that's hard to translate sometimes it's mercy sometimes you'll see loving kindness there are different words steadfast love is probably the best we can get at in english but it's that it's that penetrating and determined love of god that tender love of god that will never let us go that unconditional love that chases us down and never gives up on us no matter what happens and the bible says that god is full of that He doesn't just have it. He's abounding in it. It's overflowing from him. And then also with faithfulness to keep his every promise. So tell me, is that the God you know? Is that the God you know? Or is the God you know just the the, the fearful taskmaster, boss type of of, of despot or tyrant or or whatever? Or, Or is the God you know, only love and happiness and joy and, 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 and cutesy stuff, you know. Amen. Or is God the real God? Is the God you know, a God whose majesty and holiness prompts the emotions of awe and reverent fear, but also a God whose mercy and grace inspire hope and confidence in your heart? A God whose patience fills you with gratitude, whose love moves you to respond with love in return. 
whose faithfulness restores your confidence when you have a horrible day and you feel and you're totally broken and you feel like despairing and giving up, but God is faithful and it moves you. Do you know the goodness of God? Do you know the goodness of God? Do you meditate on these qualities of, of God? When you think of God's glory, God's glory, do you, do you just think about God's majesty and his beauty and his awesomeness and his creative power and all that? Because maybe that's easy to think of that when you think of God's glory. But when you think of God's glory, do you think of what Moses experienced here? Do you celebrate also his compassionate heart, which is part of his glory? It's part of his glory. Oh, and there's more. I didn't get to the end of this, did I? God is forgiving, which allows us to be honest and straightforward with Him and with ourselves about our sin, even our most shameful sin, to be real with Him. Now, here's where it gets a little confusing, right? Because God, right after God claims to be forgiving, He also declares that He will not leave the guilty unpunished. So, that's, that's how He ends the announcement. That's kind of harsh sounding, right? And Moses, at the end of this, just hits the deck. He falls on his face in worship, but I wonder if the same question is in Moses' heart that sometimes occurs to us, which is, how can, God say all, how can God say that he's forgiving and then in the same breath turn around and say that he will not clear the guilty? I mean, which is it? Can both those things be true at the same time about God? How can we make sense of this part of God's response? Moses' request. I mean, if God is really forgiving, then why doesn't he just forget the part about punishing the guilty, right? Why can't he just forgive and be done with it? This is actually a very common criticism of Christianity, by the way, both from Muslims who claim their God can just forgive with no strings attached, and from skeptics who think that God should just be able to, to overlook sin and just forgive people for free. Why can't God just forgive people for free? But if you think about it, forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness is never free. It always carries a cost of some kind for somebody. I mean, this is easy to illustrate financially, right? If you owe me money and I forgive your debt, who pays for that? I do, right? Somebody does. I do. Because I have to absorb the loss, and so I pay the price. It works the same with our sin. When we sin against one another, forgiveness, forgiveness of an offense always carries a kind of cost, doesn't it? I can't remember where I heard this first, but I've shared it with people many times since then in counseling and other times. To forgive, to forgive, to really, for, to really forgive is to agree to live with the consequences of another person's sin. To agree to live with the consequences of another person's sin. Those consequences may involve emotional pain. They may involve absorbing an insult or offense. They may involve financial loss. They may involve living with physical or emotional scars that give you a constant reminder of how that person wounded or abused or violated you. But forgiveness, deliberately choosing not to go after your pound of flesh, deliberately deciding you will not pay that person back, and eventually even deciding to forget, to forget where the hatchet is buried. That's always costly. It always hurts. It's never free. And, and that pain that we absorb has to be processed somehow. Yeah, we say we just forgive, but that isn't really possible because guilt does not just vanish into thin air. Somebody's got to pay the price. And so it is with God. 
when we sin against him repeatedly in thought, word, and deed, when we go our own way, when we violate his glory, when we serve other gods, other things, other priorities in his place, just as the Israelites did at the foot of that mountain, when we do that, somebody has to pay the price for what we've done. And as amazed as Moses must have been at this awesome display of the goodness of God and these words that he's hearing, I am sure that he had no idea of the length to which God would go in order to reconcile the last two statements that he made on that mountain. To be merciful and also just. To forgive and also punish the guilty. Or as Paul says in Romans, to be both just and the one who justifies. He didn't know. He didn't know that one day God himself would personally step into human history. Stand in our place as the guilty one. And then in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, absorb the punishment for sin, for all sin, in his body on the cross. That God would one day forsake his own son, tearing his presence away from his son, which is what he promised not to do, to the Israelites who had sinned against him in the time of Moses. As we enjoy the presence of the Lord, because we get to enjoy the presence of the Lord, we get to be led into the Holy of Holies. We get access to God through the blood of Jesus. As we encounter his glory, as we worship him, as we consider how that glory and how, that, how God impacts our lives, as we worship him for his goodness as well as his greatness, Let's never forget the price he paid and that he loves us far more than we could ever imagine. And that if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Amen. Let's pray.